Chapter Forty Nine of They Call Me Carpenter by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Forty Nine. Comrade Abel told us where the police court was located, and we agreed to be there at nine o'clock next morning. Then I parted from the rest and walked until I met a taxi and drove to my rooms. I felt desolate and forlorn. Nothing in my old life had any interest for me. This was the afternoon when I usually went to the athletic club to box, but now I found myself wondering what would Carpenter say to such imitation fighting. I decided I would stay by myself for a while and take a walk and think things over. I had been dissatisfied with my life for a long time. The glamour had begun to wear off the excitement of youth, and I had begun to suspect that my life was idle and vain. Now I knew that it was, and also I knew that the world was a place of torment and woe. I returned late in the afternoon, and a few minutes afterwards my telephone rang, and I discovered that somebody else was dissatisfied with life. "'Hello, Billy,' said the voice of T.S. "'I see that feller Carpenter is in jail. Why don't you bail him out?' "'He won't let me,' I said. "'Well, maybe it might be a good thing to leave him in jail a week till this brigade convention gets over.' funny said i i had the same idea listen continued the other i've been feelin awful bad because i told them fellers i didn't know him do you suppose he knows i said that billy well said i he knew you were going to say it so probably he knows you said it well said t s maybe you laugh at me but i've been thinkin i'd tell them fellers to go to hell what fellers de whole damn world billy i feel like dat feller carpenter i never met a feller like him before you think he would let me go to see him in de jail? I'm sure he'd be glad to see you, I said, if the jailers didn't object. Sure, I fixed the jailers all right. But T.S., I added, I don't believe he'll sign any contract. Contract nothing, said T.S. I just want to see him, Billy. Is there anything I could do for him? I thought for a moment, then I said, you might do something for one of his friends, and that's young Everett. He got pretty badly hurt, and he's sticking at the job of taking down all Carpenter's speeches. He ought to have a surgeon and also a first-class stenographer to take turns with him. Have you got another man like him? I don't know, said T.S. You don't find a young feller like Matt Everett every day. I started. What did you say is his name? Matthew, said T.S. Why, you ask? Nothing, said I. Just a coincidence. Our conversation ended with a remark by T.S. that he would call up the station house and arrange to see Carpenter. Five minutes later the telephone rang again, and I heard the magnet's voice. "'Billy, they say he's been bailed out.' "'What?' I cried. He declared he wouldn't have it done. Somebody done it without asking him. De money was paid, and they turned him out. Who did it?' "'Guess.' "'You mean it was you?' "'I wouldn't have dared. I only just found out about it.' mary magna done it and she took him away somewhere good lord i exclaimed and before my mind's eye flashed another headline fair film star frees love cult prophet i promised to try to find out about the prophet at once he won't get away i said because he doesn't ride in automobiles and he and mary can't walk very far on the street without the newspapers finding them i took my telephone book and looked up the name abel it is an unusual name, and there was only one attorney bearing it. I was struck by the fact that the first name of this attorney was Mark. I called him on the phone and heard the familiar gentle voice. 
Yes, Comrade Carpenter had just arrived, and Miss Magna was with him. They were going to have a little party, and they would be glad to have me come. Yes, Mr. T.S. would be welcome, of course. So then I called up the magnet of the pictures, and not without an inward smile conferred on him the gracious permission to spend the evening at the headquarters of local western city of the Socialist Party. End of chapter 49 Chapter 50 When I got to the meeting-place I found that a feast had been spread. I don't know where the money came from. Maybe it was Bolshevik gold as the enemy charged, or maybe it was the ill-gotten gains of a million-dollar movie van. Anyhow, there was a table spread with a couple of cloths that were clean, if ragged, and on them flowers and fruit. Carpenter was seated at the head of the table, and I noted to my surprise that he had on a beautiful robe of snow-white linen, instead of the one he had formerly worn, which was not only stained with kerosene, but filthy with the dust of the streets. I learned that Mrs. T.S. had brought this festal garment, a simple matter for her, because in movie studios they have wardrobe rooms where they turn out any sort of costume imaginable. This robe was so striking that it created a little controversy. James the carpenter, who had an ascetic spirit, considered it necessary to speak plainly and point out that Mrs. T.S. would have done better to take the money and give it to the poor. But the prophet answered, Let this woman alone. She has done a good thing. The poor you have always with you, but me you have only for a short time. This woman has helped to make our feast happy, and men will tell about it in future years. But that did not satisfy the ascetic James, who retired to his corner grumbling. I know we're going to start a new church, the same old graft all over again. A man has no business to say a thing like that. The first thing you know they'll be taking the widow's mite to buy silk and velvet dresses for her and golden goblets for him to drink from. And then, before you know it, they'll be setting him up in stained-glass windows, and priests'll be wearing jeweled robes and saying, It's all right, and quoting his words. I perceived that it wasn't so easy for a prophet to manage a bunch of disciples in these modern days. The controversy did not seem to trouble Mrs. T.S., who was waddling about, perfectly happy in the kitchen, doing the things she would have done all the time if her husband's social position had not required her to keep a dozen servants. Also I noted to my great astonishment that Mary Magda, instead of taking a place at the prophet's right hand, according to the prerogative of queens, had put on a plain apron and was helping Ma and Mrs. Abel. More surprising yet, T.S. had seated himself inconspicuously at the foot of the table, while at the prophet's right hand there sat a convict with a twenty-year jail sentence hanging over him, John Culver, the wobbly poet. Again an ancient phrase learned in childhood came floating through my mind. He hath put down the mighty from their seats, and exalted them of low degree. Somehow word had got to all the little group of agitators of various shades. There was Kworsky, the secretary of the tailor's union, whose first name I learned was Luka, also his fellow Russian, the express driver, Simon Carlin, and Tom Manetta, the young Mexican cigar-maker. There was Matthew Everett, free to be a guest on this occasion, because T.S. had brought along another stenographer. There was Mark Abel and another socialist, a young Irishman named Andy Lynch, a veteran of the late war who had come home completely cured of militarism and was now spending his time distributing socialist leaflets and preaching to the workers wherever he could get two or three to listen. Also there was Hamby, the pacifist whom I did not like, 
and a second IWW brought by Culver, a lad named Philip, who had recently been indicted by the grand jury, and was at this moment a fugitive from justice with a price upon his head. The door of the room was opened, and another man came in, a striking figure, tall and gaunt, with old and pitifully untidy clothing, and a half-month's growth of beard upon his chin. He wore an old black hat, frayed at the edges, but under this hat was a face of such gentleness and sadness that it made you think of Carpenter's own. Withal it was a Yankee face, of that lean, stringy kind that we know so well. The newcomer's eyes fell upon Carpenter, and his face lighted. He set down an old carpet-bag that he was carrying, and stretched out his two hands and went to him. "'Carpenter, I've been looking for you.' And Carpenter answered, "'My brother.' And the two clasped hands, and I thought to myself with astonishment, "'How does Carpenter know this man?' Presently I whispered to Abel, "'Who is he?' I learned that he was one I had heard of in the papers, Bartholomew Howard, the millionaire hobo. He was grandson and heir of one of our great captains of industry, and had taken literally the advice of the prophet to sell all that he had and give it to the unemployed. He traveled over the country, living among the hobos and organizing them into his brotherhood. Now you would have thought that he and Carpenter had known each other all their lives. As I watched them I found myself thinking, where are the clergy in the pillars of St. Bartholomew's Church? There were none of them at this supper party. End of chapter 50 Chapter 51 T.S. had stopped at a caterer's on his way to the gathering, and had done his humble best in the form of a strawberry shortcake almost half as large around as himself, also several bottles of purple color with a label of grape juice. When the company gathered at the table and these bottles were opened, they made a suspicious noise, and so we all made jokes, as people have the habit of doing in these days of getting used to prohibition. I noticed that Carpenter laughed at the jokes and seemed to enjoy the whole festivity. It happened that fate had placed me next to James, so I listened to more asceticism. He ought to do things like this. People will say he likes to eat rich food and to drink. It's bad for the movement for such things to be said. Cheer up, my friend, I laughed. Even the Bolsheviks have a feast now and then, when they can get it. You'll see what the newspapers do with this tomorrow, growled the other. Then you won't think it's so funny. Forget it, I said. There aren't any reporters here. No, said he, but there are spies here, you may be sure. There are spies everywhere nowadays. You'll see. Presently Carper called on some of the company for speeches. Would Bartholomew tell about the unemployed, what their organization was doing, and what were their plans? And after that he asked John Colver, who sat on his right hand, to recite some of his verses. John and his friend Philip, a blue-eyed, freckle-faced lad who looked as if he might be in high school, told stories about the adventures of outlaw agitators. For several months these two had been traveling in the country as blanket-stiffs, securing employment in lumber camps and mines, gathering the workers secretly in the woods to listen to the new gospel of deliverance. The employers were organized on a nationwide scale everywhere throughout the country and the workers with their feeble craft unions were like men using bows and arrows against machine-guns. There must be one big union, that was the slogan, and if you preached it you went every hour in peril of such a fate that you counted fourteen years in jail as comparatively a happy ending. 
said Carpenter, it is not such a bad thing for a cause to have its preachers go to jail. Well, said the lad of the blue eyes and the freckled face, we try to keep a few outside to tell what the rest are in for. Later on I remember John Culver told a funny story about this pal of his. The story had to do with grape juice instead of with propaganda, but it appealed to me because it showed the gay spirit of these lads. The two of them had sought refuge from a storm in a barn, and there, lying buried in the hay with the rain pouring down on the roof, they had heard the farmer coming to milk his cows. The man had evidently just parted from his wife, and there had been a quarrel, but the farmer had dared to say what he wanted to, so now he took it out on the cows. "'Nah, nah, nah!' he shouted with furious vehemence. "'That's it. Go on. Nag, nag, nag. Don't stop, or I might manage to get a word in. Yes, I'm late. Of course I'm late. Do you expect me to drive by the clock? Maybe I did forget the sugar. Maybe I've got nothing on my mind but errands. Whiskey? Maybe it's whiskey, and maybe it's gin, and maybe it's grape juice.' The farmer set down his milk-pail in his lantern and shook his clenched fist at the patient cattle. "'I'm a man, I am, and I'll have you understand I'm master in my own house. I'll drink if I feel like drinking. I'll stop and chat with my neighbors if I feel like stopping. I'll buy sugar if I remember to buy it, and if you don't like it you can buy your own.' And so on, becoming more inspired with his own eloquence, or maybe with the whiskey or the gin or the grape-juice until young Philip became so filled with the spirit of the combat that he popped up out of the hay and shouted, "'Good for you, old man! Stand up for your rights! Don't let her down you! Hurrah for men!' And the astounded farmer stood staring with his mouth open while the two wobbles leaped up and fled from the barn, so convulsed with laughter they hardly noticed the floods of rain pouring down upon them. End of chapter 51 Chapter 52 but, of course, it wasn't long before this little company became serious again. Carpenter told Franklin that he ought not stay here. He, Carpenter, was too conspicuous a figure. The authorities were certain to be watching him. Gorski backed him up. There were sure to be spies here. They would never leave such a man unwatched. They would set to work to get something on him, and if they couldn't get it they would make it. When Carpenter asked what he meant, he explained, they'll plant dynamite into place where you are or they'll fake up some letters to show you've been planning violence and do people believe such things asked carpenter believe them cried Kworsky. if they see it in the papers they believe it sure they do the prophet answered let a man live so that the world will believe him and not his enemies then he added a startling remark there is one among us who will betray me of course they all looked at one another in consternation. They were deeply distressed, and each tried in turn, comrade, or brother, or fellow worker, or whatever term they used, is it I? Presently the sturdy-looking fellow named Hamby, who called himself a pacifist, asked, is it I? And Carpenter answered quietly, you have said it. Then, of course, some of the others started up. They wanted to throw him out, but Carpenter bade them sit down again, saying, let things take their course, for the powers of this world will perish more quickly if they are permitted to kill themselves. Apparently he saw no reason why this episode should be permitted to interfere with the festivities. Mary Magna came in laughing, bearing the strawberry shortcake, and set it on the table and proceeded to portion it out. When it was served, Carpenter said, 
I shall not be with you much longer, my friends, but you will remember me when you see this beautiful red fruit on top of a cake, and also you will think of me and my message when you taste rich purple grape juice that has perhaps stayed a day or two too long in the bottle. Some of the company laughed, but others of them had tears in their eyes, and I noticed that in the midst of the merriment the fellow Hamby got up and slipped out of the room. Not long after that the company began to disperse for various reasons. Carlin explained that his old horse had been working all day and had had no supper. Colper was uneasy, not for himself, but for his friend, and I saw him start every time the door was opened. Also T.S. was having some night scenes taken, and he and Mary were to see the work. Finally Carpenter dismissed the company with the statement that he wished to retire to Comrade Abel's private office to pray, and Abel and his friend Lynch and the young Mexican said they would watch and wait for him. The rest of us took our departure not without misgivings and sorrow in our hearts. End of chapter 52 Chapter 53 Now you may find it hard to believe a confession which I have put off making the fact that at this time I was engaged to be married. There was a certain member of what is called the younger set whom I had given reason to expect that I would think about her at least once in a while. But here for precisely three days I had been chasing about at the skirts of a prophet fresh from God, getting my name into the newspapers in scandalous fashion, and not daring even to call the young lady on the telephone and make apologies. That evening there was a dinner dance at her home and I supposed I was supposed to be there, but no one had bothered to invite me, and as a matter of fact I would not have known of the affair if I had not seen the announcement in the papers. I was too late for the dinner, but I got myself a taxicab and drove to my room and changed my clothes and hurried in my own car to the dance. You would not be interested in the fact that when I arrived I was treated as an unwelcome guest and Miss Betty even went so far as to remind me that I had not been invited. But after I had pleaded she consented to dance with me, and so for an hour or two I tried to forget there were any people in the world who had anything to do but be happy. Just as I was succeeding the butler came calling me to the telephone, and I answered and who should it be but old Joe. My surprise became consternation at his first words. "'Billy, your friend Carpenter is in peril. What do you mean? They are going to get him tonight. Good God, how do you know? It's a long story and no time to tell it. Somebody's tipped me off. Where can I meet you? Every minute is precious.' "'Where are you?' I asked, and learned that he was at his home not far away. I said I would come there, and I hurried to Betty and had another scene with her, and left her weeping, vowing that she would never see me again.' I ran out and jumped into my car, and I would hate to tell you what I did to the speed laws of Western City. Suffice it to say that a few minutes later I was in old Joe's den, and he was telling me his story. Part of it I got then, and part of it later, but I might as well tell it all at once and be done with it. It happened that at the restaurant where old Joe and I had dined before we went to the mass meeting he had met a girl whom he knew too well after the fashion of young men about town. In greeting her on the way out he had told her he was going to hear the new prophet and had laughingly suggested that the meeting was free. The girl, out of idle curiosity, had come, and had been touched by Carpenter's physical, if not by his moral, charms. 
It chanced that this girl was living with a man who stood high in the secret service department of big business in our city. So she had got the full story of what was being planned against Carpenter. That afternoon, it appeared, there had been a meeting between Algernon de Wiggs, president of our Chamber of Commerce, and Westerly, secretary of our M&M, and Gerald Carlson, organizer of our Boosters League. The three had put up six thousand dollars and turned it over to their secret service agents with instructions that Carpenter's agitations in Western City were to be ended inside of twenty-four hours. A plan had been worked out, every detail of which had been phoned to old Joe. A group of ex-servicemen, members of the brigade, had been hired to seize the prophet and treat him to a tar and feathering. It had not taken much to move them to action, for the afternoon papers were full of accounts of Carpenter's speech on Main Street, his denunciation of war, and of soldiers as murderers and wolves. But that was not all, said old Joe, and I saw that his hand was trembling as he spoke. It appeared that there was an operative named Hamby, who was one of Carpenter's followers. By God, I burst out in sudden fury. I was sure that fellow was a crook. Yes, said the other. He's been telephoning in regular reports as to Carpenter's doing, and now it's been arranged that he is to put an infernal machine in the socialist headquarters where Carpenter has been staying. I was almost speechless. You mean to blow them up? No, to blow up their reputations. Hamby is to lure Carpenter out to the street, and when the gang grabs him, Hamby will fire a shot, and there will be three or four secret agents in the crowd who will incite the others and see to it that Carpenter is lynched instead of being tarred and feathered. End of chapter 53 Chapter 54 So there was the layout, and now what was to be done? The first thing was to call Abel on the phone and see if anything had happened. I picked up the receiver, but at last the report was no answer. I urged Central to try several times, but all I could get was, I am ringing them. Carpenter, no doubt, was praying. What were the others doing? I kept on trying, but finally gave up. Could the mob have taken them away? But old Joe answered, no, a definite hour had been set. The ex-servicemen were to gather on the stroke of midnight. We had nearly an hour yet. My first thought was that we should hurry to the socialist headquarters and get Carpenter out of the way, but my friend pointed out that the place was certain to be watched, and we might find ourselves held up by the armed detectives. They would hardly take a chance of letting their prey escape at this hour. Also I realized there was no use figuring on any plan that involved spiriting Carpenter away quietly by the roof or a rear entrance or anything of that sort. He would insist on staying and facing his enemies. I put my wits to work. We needed a good-sized crowd. We needed, in fact, a mob of our own. And suddenly the word brought to me an inspiration, that mob which T.S. had drilled at Eternal City. I recalled that a year or so ago I had been lured to sit through a very dull feature picture which the Magnet had made, showing the salvation of our country by the Ku Klux Klan, and I knew enough about studio methods to be sure they had not thrown away the costumes but would have them stored. Here was the way to save our profit. Here was the way to get what one wanted in Mobland. I picked up the receiver and called Eternal City. Yes, Mr. T.S. was there, but he was on the lot and could not be disturbed. I gave my name and stated that it was a matter of life and death. Mr. T.S. must come to the phone instantly. 
A couple of minutes later I heard his voice, and told him the situation and also my scheme. He must come himself to make sure that his orders were obeyed. He must bring several busloads of men clad in the full regalia of Mobland's great secret society, and they must arrive at Abel's place precisely on the stroke of midnight. The men must be paid five dollars apiece, and be told that if they succeeded in bringing away the profit unharmed they would each get ten dollars extra. "'I will put up the money,' I said to T.S., but to my surprise he cried, "'You ain't going to put up nothing. God damn them fellers, I'll beat em if it cost me a million.' So I realized that the prophet had made one more convert. "'Have you got the bus with a siren?' I asked, and when he answered yes, I said, "'Let that be the signal. When we hear it, Joe and I will bring Carpenter down to the street, and if the brigade is there it's up to you to persuade them you're the bigger mob.' Then old Joe and I ran down to my car and drove at full speed to the socialist headquarters, and on the way we worked out our own plan of campaign. The real danger point was Hamby, the secret agent, and we must manage to put him out of the way. Despite his pose of pacifism, he was certain to be armed, said old Joe, yet we must take a chance and do the job unarmed. If we should get into a shooting scrape they would certainly put it on to us and they would make it a hanging matter, too. I named over the members of Carpenter's party who had stayed with him. Andy Lynch, the ex-soldier, was probably a useful man, and we would get his help. We would get rid of Hamby, and then we would wait for T.S. and his siren. By the time these plans were thoroughly talked out, we had reached the building in which the headquarters were located. There were lights in the main room upstairs, and the door which led up to them was open. The street was apparently deserted, and we did not stop to look for any operatives, but left our machine and stole quietly upstairs and into the room. End of chapter 54. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.